Hey everyone, I am Farah Kimji and you are listening to the Futura Talks podcast. I believe the future will be built by those who see opportunity where others see uncertainty. It will be built by people that don't look like the traditional leaders of our past, but by women and individuals from diverse backgrounds that see the world differently and who are driven to make it better for all. This podcast will feature these people, self-made leaders and entrepreneurs that defy odds and are motivated to build a better future. We will also share practical advice for how you can unlock your full potential as the leader of your own Futura. Now, let's jump into today's episode. So in today's episode, my 10th episode, I really wanted to do something special. The guest I have with me today is especially near and dear to my heart. It is the ultimate entrepreneur story and the story that has been guiding my guiding light and strength throughout my own journey. It is the story of my mother, Katun Kimji, the founder of Westmount Foot Clinic. I really wanted to share her story with my audience because I have learned so much of what I know about entrepreneurship from my mother, but also because her story is incredible. It is one of resilience, strength, and perseverance, defying all odds when the cards were stacked against her. My mom, Katun, immigrated to Canada in her 20s without having finished her high school education, and today she is a successful entrepreneur, running a thriving clinic as a chiropodist, and now, in her early 70s, still working two days a week, attracting new clients weekly. I am so excited to share her story with you. I will share that it took some coaxing into, and she may be a bit nervous, but I know you will leave inspired and motivated to defy the odds in your own life. So let's dive in. Mom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so glad you're here and that you said yes to being with me. Okay, mom. So let's take it back, way back to your upbringing. Tell me about your childhood and, you know, what you were like as a child and what did you aspire to be when you grew up? As a child, I was quite tomboyish. I was playing with my brothers all the time because I was born in between my two brothers. So I was a sandwich child if you want to call that. I, I had very few friends. I was mostly helping my mom with her catering business. Making samosas. Right? Making samosas. I'm an, oh, by the way, I'm an expert at making samosas. And then I guess up to high school, I wasn't so much interested in schoolwork. I was just interested in housework and making samosas. That was my, you know, Specialty, I guess, you know. Then in my early 20s, I came to Canada. And basically... The whole family came to Canada, right? The whole family. I came with my mom. And my younger brother was already uh, out west in Vancouver. And he was going to school. Uh, When I came to Canada, I worked for three to four years to put my brother through school. Mm -hmm. Your younger brother. My younger brother through school. He became mechanical engineer. Yeah, a successful one. Yes. 
Okay, so now you came to Canada, you came with your older brother, your mom, your younger brother was here, and your sister who got your eldest sister. sister was here. Yeah, she was here. She got married. You know, you had what? What was the difference in age between you? I would say about six years. More than six, no? Six to seven yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. So she was already here. She was married, right? She was married. Yeah. Okay, so you're here and you're in Vancouver. You're with your family. And then maybe just pause and say sort of what happened then about how you ended up kind of meeting and marrying my dad. Sure as. <laughs> okay. The story goes back to Africa. Because that's where we met, in Nairobi, Kenya. And we met, at, believe it or not, at the worshipping place at the mosque. He was eyeing me all the time and I wasn't, <laughs> you know, aware of that. Anyways, so uh, long story short, we got engaged. I was only 19 at the time. I did not want to get married so young. So when I got the opportunity to come to Canada, I literally, like, I escaped to come to Canada so that I don't have to get married so early. Yeah. And then, but what happened? You're now in Canada and then, you know, my dad ends up in Vancouver. Well, yeah, I guess he still was in love with me. <laughs> so basically, <laughs> he, came, he immigrated just for you. He came, immigrated to Canada just for me. But he stayed in, uh, he actually landed uh, in Toronto. And two years later, he came to Vancouver to visit his family members. And that's where he decided to start the process with me again. <laughs> <laughs> and and flash forward, you know, you guys end up reconnecting and getting married. Okay. And then you moved. You left your family yes. in Vancouver and you moved to London, Ontario. To 1977. 1977. And then that was also very shortly after that was when Salima, Salima my was sister, born. Okay. 1979. Amazing. Okay. Yeah. And I was still working. For, I had a full-time job. I was working at an assurance company in uh, London, downtown. After working two years after having Salima, we, we could not afford babysitting. So I decided to stay home. Mm -hmm. And then two years later, I had you. <laughs> yeah, I came along. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when I decided... When Fire was six months old, I decided that I was not a stay-at-home mother. Yeah. I had to do something else. Yeah. So I was given a choice of either going back to school, staying home as a glorified housewife, or learn computers. I decided to go back to school. Mm -hmm. And going back to school for you meant going back in like continuing your high school, right? Yes, because after had 15 years, I decided to go back to school. I did not know that I was making my life so difficult. Yeah. You know? And guys, in the early 80s, there was no internet, there was no online. So continuing continuing your high school meant you were doing it through correspondence, yes, right? Yes, through correspondence at home. I did 11 subjects. I actually had to start from grade nine decimals, fractions, because I was deciding to go into the sciences. So I had to start from grade nine. I finished grade nine math. I skipped grade 10. I went to 11, 12, 13. There was, at that time, there was still grade 13. Yeah. And then went to university. I did two years of university full-time. At Western. At Western. Yeah. And at that time, 
I think Farah was six months old, I had gone to this wedding reception and I was sitting beside a nurse who was changing her career. Uh, she was going to become a chiropodist. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I ever heard the name chiropodist. I didn't even know what it was. So I asked, what does that mean? And she said to me, it's foot care. It's, you know, okay. I'm being foot care professionally. There's going to be a lot of demand for it. And I asked her why she's saying that. And she said, that's because all of us are going to be living for a very, very long time. So there's going to be this aging population that's going to need foot care. Wow. So that was the reason why I decided I wanted to go into foot care. So you're at, you know, you're at this wedding, you were studying and trying to become a physiotherapist. And now you meet this, this woman who starts telling you about chiropathy, something you've never even heard about. Mm-hmm. And you sort of decide to change your trajectory. So what did that mean in terms of your schooling now at this point? Okay, so I come home. I'm so excited. I'm driving on the highway. I'm talking to my spouse. And he, he said to my dad. <laughs> it's like, I know who you're I'm talking to your dad. And he basically said, you know, why don't you apply? So I applied and I had to come to Toronto. I had to do this manual dexterity test. Long story short, I had to, I, I got in, but driving back home, I realized Farah was only six months old. You were only six months old and I could not live with anybody. So then I called the school of property and told them I want to defer it for five years. Mm-hmm. So I deferred it for five years. In the meantime, I was still trying to get into physiotherapy and I did not. Yeah. So here we are. So here we are. And was there this sort of like, you know, at this point you've deferred it. You've probably had moments of, you had two young kids at home. You know, I know from what you've told me, there was times that you wanted to kind of give up, but was there a turning point moment in your life where you just said, no, I'm not giving up. I'm going to just change my trajectory now. Yes. Yeah. So once I was unsuccessful into getting into physiotherapy, I decided I'm going to do chiropathy. No, no, you know, come hell or heaven. So I had a lot of support from your dad. He said, you know, it would be okay if I you know, went to Toronto. I would say Monday to Friday. I came home every weekend. This was supposed to be for three years, but it just, there was an extension of one more year because right after I graduated, I was given uh, to take over one of the instructor's maternity leave. Mm-hmm. So here I am, I'm calling my, your dad, tell him that. And he said, well, you have done this for three years. One more year is not going to kill you. Yeah. And I remember this story, though, that you told me at one point, and maybe this was a little bit before all of this, where, where you had kind of, you were studying and you just, yes. you know, through, through all your, you know, dad had come home yes. and you had thrown all your books in the garbage. Tell them that story because yes. it's an important one. Well, grade nine, Matt, I was supposed to do 10 lessons and I had an instructor in Toronto, you know, usually with independent uh, learning, they would, you know, you do one lesson, send, you know, mail it to them. They would mark it and send it back to you. I talked to this instructor and I told him in one and a half years time, I want to go to university and I have all these subjects to do. And if I do five or 10 lessons at the same time and send it to him, 
if you could mark it and send it back to me, that would fast forward things for me. Yeah. So I found that at that time you were only six months old and Salima was three and a half years old, whatever. Anyway, so I had finished my grade nine lessons, all 10 of them. I had gone to 11 and I was finding it very hard, especially winter time. I, Salima was going to Montessori, so I, you know, bundle you up and you know take you to school and drop Salima and go and pick her up and you know this was a bit too much with all the housework cooking cleaning everything so I decided I can't do this Mm -hmm. so I just got rid of my books I just threw them in the garbage yeah and when your dad came home and he said why are you not doing your lesson and I said well I I can't cope it's too much for me so he said and here's what he said to me yeah. He said, you're going to be a nobody all your life. Mm-hmm. You'll never be a somebody. I picked up the books from the garbage. Mm-hmm. And the rest is history. I know. And, and obviously, you know, dad was saying that with a bit of reverse psychology because he knew you were somebody. He just wanted you to know it, too. And yes. he needed you to know it. And he needed you to come to that realization yeah. yourself. So, yes. And, you know, it worked because you never looked back after yeah. that. Yeah. Because when I picked those books, I said to myself, I'm going to show you that I'm going to be a somebody. Yeah. And not only did you become a somebody, I mean, we're going to get to all the success that you've had. So, okay. So now let's, let's go forward. You're on your way to becoming a chiropodist. You're in school you took over the maternity leave of the instructor. Tell us kind of what it was like to be in school, you know, in the late 1980s in Toronto with two young kids at home in London, Ontario. And so for our global listeners, that's over two hours apart. What was the commute like and, and kind of what kept you going for those four years? Actually, it was the hardest thing ever. The commute was the hardest but I decided I'm going to learn something while I'm traveling. So not was I just learning on the train, London to Toronto and Toronto to London, but also in Toronto when I was taking the subway. You were always studying. You were always, I was always reading. Yes. Yeah. I did my main subject, the, the podiatry subject, the main subject on the train. And none of this hustle of bustle and all the noises, none of it bothered me. I became immune to it. And there was no iPods back then, right? So she's just old school, like our iPads. I'm dating myself too, but reading her textbooks on the bus, on the train. And, you know, you were coming back and forth, you know, leaving sort of on a Sunday or Monday, coming back every Friday, cooking and cleaning for the whole, you know, for us. So we would have food all week. Like I, I remember picking you up from the Greyhound station, that's the bus station. So my mom wasn't driving herself. She was taking the bus. bus yes. Right? Yes. I was taking the bus mostly. And what kind of motivated you throughout those four years? My goal of becoming a, a shrubbist. Yeah. That's what kept me. I kept on imagining myself in a white lab coat. Yeah. And I think that's what kept me going. That's what kept you going. Yes. Yeah. That was yeah. the main thing. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. So now you, you make it through the four years, you graduate and tell everybody where you started your career. 
I started my career at Tron at London Health Sciences Center. Yeah, um, it was called I, Victoria at, Hospital at the at time. At that time, was called Victoria yeah. Hospital. Uh, now London Health Sciences Center. I never did an interview. I was offered a job because I had worked at the Toronto General Hospital ah, for okay. a year. So if I have to do an interview today, I would fail miserably. No, that's not true. <laughs> that's not true. You're doing great with this one. What were the early years like working in the hospital? Very, very, very challenging. Mm-hmm. Okay. You had to get used to the number of people you had to see per day. It's a very high pressure job. But I got the best start from working at the hospital. Not only did I build up my clientele, but I also got the opportunity to use the lab where I did thousands of pairs of orthotics. Yeah, so it was That's good. helping me right now. And good volume of clients right. and, and learning and yes. whatnot. So you're, you're working there. And how long did you work for in the hospital? I would say about eight to nine years. Eight to nine years. So you're there eight to nine years. You're settled you have a nice sort of nine to five routine at this point. Yes. You know, Salima and I are a little bit more grown up. Yes. And I, I, you know, I'm in high school and then you learned that OHIP was no longer going to be covering chiropody services. So on that day, what went through your mind when you learned this? Okay. So we were given the pink slip. With two months notice. <laughs> two months notice. So basically they were set, shutting down the chiropody department. The whole department, yes. Yeah. And it was, um, you know, so I came home. At that time, your dad was not working. He was laid off from his. Yeah. He had been laid being off. Being a senior engineer and all that. At that time, they were, you know, cutting back in senior engineers and stuff. So he was at home for a year before I was given the big slip. I came home and I started to cry. Yeah. Now I would have no job. Yeah. And this is when your dad got up. Like he 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 woke up from his deep sleep at home for one year because he didn't know what was going on with him too. So he said, "No, this is the best news. Now you can go. Now you can justify going into private practice." Yeah. And like, and what I love about that story is here is you know. My father, he's been laid off, you know, from a government job. And and instead of panicking while you're also being laid off, he saw the opportunity in that, right? Yes. And, you know, he, and he, he really saw the opportunity in you for a long time. And he saw this as a chance to say, okay, let me help you in yes. building your own clinic. So, yes. you know, what happened? You had two months, okay? Yes, I had two months. And basically, uh, you know, when your dad said, this is the best thing that can ever happen to you, I did not see anything good about that at the time. But he he got so mobilized. He got, you know, he found us a place, you know, uh, to rent. And we had to do major, you know, renovating in that place. So he ran with the thing, you know, within two weeks, my business cards were, you know, printed out and everything. Because we were given two months so that we could make our next appointment for our clients in our private practice. Yeah. So the hospital was very, very helpful in that way. We were even allowed to buy all the equipment and everything. From them. Yeah, Yeah. from them, all instruments and everything. So that was a head start that we got. 
from yeah. the hospital. And they let you sort of hand out your business cards yes. to your, your and clients. Yes, and to our, your our patients clients and make yeah. appointments in our clinic, a new clinic. Amazing. So did you, how much time did you have between your last day at the hospital and the opening of Westmount Foot Clinic? Not very much time. I would say a couple of days. Yeah. And actually, how did you come up with the name Westmount Foot Clinic? Well, I wanted to be in the same area where I lived. So Westmount, you know. Yes, yeah, that's yeah. where we live. You know, West, I, I didn't want to say Westmount Foot Clinic because there's another foot clinic yeah. called Foot Clinic in Westmount. So I decided I'm going to change it a little bit and say Westmount Foot and Orthotic Clinic. Yes. And so that people would be clear too that you just yes, orthotics too, as well. Yes. We later you rebranded just to Westmount Foot Clinic, but at the time it was Westmount Foot and Orthotic Clinic. Yes. And you leased a place right on one of the major roads in yes. London, on Ontario. Yes. Yeah, on Wonderland Road. Dad oversaw all of the renovation so that yes. you could finish up your last few days. And I remember I was in high school and we had the grand opening. And on the day of the grand opening, you saw patients. I saw patients in the morning and then afternoon was the grand opening. Yeah. Yes. I I, I Yeah. And your your dad worked with me for six, eight months after that. He he didn't like to be called my receptionist. So we called him office manager. Yeah. He actually uh, had a very good rapport with my patients. Especially yeah. the women. <laughs> yeah, he's, yeah, he's a social guy. He's a charmer. Yeah. He's a charmer and yeah. everyone got along with him. That's for sure. I remember yes. that. And then he actually ended up getting rehired yes, by yeah. the, I guess, Minister of Environment in Toronto. And I was actually with a patient and when he got that phone call and when I came out, and when I, mean, I was done with the patient, he asked me, he told me that he was offered a job in Toronto and what should we do? And I said, take it. It's it, This is what you do. You are a civil engineer. You should take that job. Yeah. Right? So, so it's, it's so impressive. It would how... a commute for him. Yeah. Monday to Friday. For a couple of years, he, he did that. So a couple of years, 11 years. Almost, yeah, almost 11, 11 years. years. But he did yes. a commute. You're it right. was a long time. Yes. Yeah. He did. Yeah. Okay. So for the audience members that may not be familiar with chiropathy, can you explain what it is you do and what types of things you treat your patients for? Chiropathy entails everything to do with the foot, especially below the ankle. Okay. Which means total foot care, cones, calluses, plantar roots, diabetic ulcers, foot ulcers, custom-made orthotics, orthopedic shoes, and any other problems like blisters or whatever. Also, sports injuries like, you know, ankle, ankle tendonitis and, you know, etc. So it's to do everything with the foot. Okay. And who are your your clients or your patients? Like, generally speaking, who? what types of people do you see? We see uh, people from all range of you know ages from anywhere between four years old to 94 year olds okay so it's not just all seniors it's not just seniors yeah it's like yes the practice is mostly i would say about 70 percent seniors okay but then you know the rest of the other people fall you know in that 30 percent okay and you see some athletes or yes we do see athletes we see runners uh, i see a lot of runners i see a lot of people working 
in factories and stuff, wearing uh, work boots. Yeah, uh, you know, and construction and people all who work on their feet on all the day, feet, uh, standing all day. Of late, I've had a lot of nurses yeah. in my uh, clients because of the COVID. You know, they they were doing long hours. You know, they were doing working twelve hour shifts or more. Yeah. So you know that made you know they ended up with knee problems and lower back problems. So. Yeah, so well, interesting to see how the you know effects the, of the COVID changed. Yeah, yes. has affected yeah. a lot of people physically, right? And, yes. And our feet are our foundation, as you always the tell foundation me. Foundation of our body. And if your foundation is not strong, then the whole body is going to fall apart. <laughs> I always said that you have to have very strong foundation and roots to you know. To be able to do anything. So my mom is more of a Birkenstocks type of person rather than stilettos. She never, <laughs> she never likes to let me wear heels because I needed yes. to have that strong foundation, right, mom? Yes. Okay. You're running a business now because you have a clinic to run, but you're also seeing patients. You know, how are those first few years of having your own business now? The worst ever. Because <laughs> You cannot be a clinician as well as be an administration, uh, you know, go and do admin work because it's, you know, because you're always focused on the treatment part of it. More. And your patients. I yeah. would say 90% of it and, you know, 10% would be your documentation thing, you know, writing your, your documents. However, I actually was so fed up. I didn't know what to, what to do. So I called your sister, Selima. She was in Africa. I can't do this. And she said, Mom, your problem is you become so dependent on dad. But are you forgetting that you are working independently at the hospital? Mm-hmm. So what gives now? Like what gives? Unfortunately, if you do not want to hire anybody, then you have to do the job yourself. Nobody's going to come mm-hmm. and help you. And this is when I literally woke up from my deep sleep of feeling sorry for myself and I decided I'm going to become so independent that even independence is going to envy me (laughs) wow that's that is a line (laughs) that's that's a quotable so yeah I remember those years you worked really hard you know you managed an entire clinic while seeing these patients you had so many patients at that time you were bringing in new patients it was incredible and, you know, here and there, Salima, myself, dad would help you out with the bookkeeping and the yes. accounting and, you know, ordering the orthotics and shoes and whatnot. Yes. But, you know, you had you had to oversee all of us in yes. that. And you yes. were really the one managing everything. It was incredible. So you you did that for quite a bit of time in this location that you were leasing. Yes. And then you decided to buy this three story unit, you know, in a business complex And you basically became a landlord and leased out the top floor to some financial advisors. And then you, on the bottom floor, started to manufacture orthotics. And then, you know, the main level is where you ran the clinic. So how did this really transition your business, especially with respect to, you know, now making orthotics in-house? Okay. The reason why I wanted to make my own orthotics is because I already made thousands of pairs in the hospital. But the six months of renting this other clinic, I did not have that opportunity. So I decided I want that opportunity. I want to make my own orthotics, okay? Yes, it's time-consuming and everything, but 
in terms of, you know, my lab costs were really high. You know, so how, how much, you know, would it cost to, wait, you charge how much for an orthotic? $500, anywhere between $400 to $500 a pair. Because yeah. we try to work with a patient's, you know, insurance coverage. However, the lab would take half of the $400. Yeah. And then, and what was the cost to manufacture it on your own? I would say, you know, $150, 100 to $150. To do it yourself? No, 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 it wasn't. Sorry, sorry. It, wasn't. Yeah. it was about 50 to $75. 50 to $75 a pair, right? Yeah. And yes. for something that sells at 500. So you really saw the opportunity, you know, from a business perspective to increase the but, margin. But my colleagues didn't think that way. They thought I was, I was quite crazy to have my, to make my own orthotics. Yeah. Because obviously that would take my time away from seeing the clients. Yeah, now, I did my lab work on the weekends. You did forget that. Yeah, and but also, I think what they didn't see is you know seeing patients and not it was seventy five dollars, you know for you know just a treatment and five hundred dollars for the orthotics. But if you're manufacturing your own and you're now making you know even exactly. more, more than triple, yes. it's a huge opportunity. Yes. So you saw that and you invested in that to the point that. Even today, you still make orthotics. And yes. just so you guys know, before this call or before we decided to sit down and record this podcast, you know, my mom said, nope, I have to make, I have to do my orthotics first. And she was literally grinding orthotics before we recorded this podcast. So, you know, such an incredible vision that you had. Okay. I'd like to talk a bit too, because something that really impressed me a lot over the years, I mean, there's so many things was when you decided to get certified, you know, certified to be a certified diabetes educator, because a lot of people who have feet problems, you know, a lot of them have are diabetic. So tell us about your attempts and, and, and your process around studying for that. Well, um, it was a, a very, very challenging for me. I went through three times during the, you know, three years in a row. The exams I returned in May and I was not successful. I would have been very successful if they had essay writing, but multiple choice is not for somebody like me. <laughs> so I actually was very lucky that I got through in university with multiple choice. But really and truly, I, if I'm given too many choices, I cannot, you can choose. But what I think you're leaving out of this story is my mom, you know, studied really hard for this exam, did not yes. pass the first time, said, you know what, that's okay, I'll try again a year later, did not pass <laughs> the second time, and said, you know what, I'll do it again a year later. And, and mind you, she's in her 60s yes. when this is happening. Yes. And, you know, I'm off living in Toronto, but I would come home and my mom would have her books laid out and she would be studying. Now, this getting a certified diabetes educator status is not necessary for her to do her job. This was just her way to say, let me even, you know, at this age and at this stage in my career, I still want to be the best. I still want to serve my clients. And while mom, while you didn't, you know, you weren't successful three times, the knowledge is there. And you yes. have that knowledge yes. and you're able to use it. And I'm applying all that, that I, you know, learned in the three years. Obviously it was all repeated three times for me, three times in 
third time is a charm. So yeah. I've still kept all my knowledge. Yeah. Applying it to the tea. And I think it's just an important part in her story that look to never give up, right? Here's someone in their 60s still studying, still learning, still trying to improve themselves and their skills and knowledge. And, you know, I personally found that to be super, super inspiring. Okay, so now let's talk, you know, in an attempt to sort of slow down your business a bit, you sold the business complex, right? And you moved into now the house that you're in now that was sort of designed in a way that allowed you to be able to see patients from home easily. However, you really haven't slowed down that much from what I see. You know, you're working two, you know, two and a half days a week. You know, why do you keep working in and what motivates you? Okay, if you love what you're doing, then it doesn't seem like work. Mm-hmm. It seems like a hobby. My patients are the best patients ever. They've all, you know, been very loyal to me. They're like family more yeah. than my patients. I mean, at this at this stage, you've even seen generations of the family, right? Yes. You have some mothers and, and yes. then you see their parents and you, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the business has grown, really and truly grown by word of mouth. Yeah, it's incredible because, you know, my mom built her business with pretty much no marketing other than, you know, initially having a prime location on Wonderland Road in London and then her business cards. But otherwise, you know, she's got a listing in the yellow pages and she's online and patients are finding her. Yes, Yes. Yeah, still, this like you yes. still see new pages. Thank God for yellow pages. <laughs> yeah. And just so for people listening, yellow pages was back in the day an, a book, you know, a paper a book, book that you would get to look up, you know, uh, businesses and, and people in. All right. So, what, what do you see as the future of your clinic? Have you thought about that, at, you know, as you near retirement? Yes. Uh, I'd love to hand over my practice to some young shropodist who, you know, who will be able to, you know, carry on with my loyal patients. Yeah. And so I would want, you know, would love to train them and talk to, you know, to the shiropolis about all my clients. Yeah. And tell them, you know, what the expectations are. And their history. And, and their history that. and their geography yeah. and everything. Yeah, I think you have such a loyal client base. Any, any young shiropolis would be lucky to be able to take over your client list. So, okay. So when you do retire, then have you thought about what it is that you want to do with your time? Yes, I have. I'm not going to completely hang up my uh, instruments. I I would like to do some voluntary work, especially in nursing homes. Since COVID, I haven't been able to do that. So I miss that a lot. So I'd like to, you know, volunteer at least once a week. You know, doing that. Going to nursing homes. Okay. And anything else you want to do outside of Shiropoli? Yes, and I'd love to write a book. Okay. So what would your book be about? It would be mostly about women. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking of a title and I was saying, you know, it's it's a woman's world. (laughs) That would be my title, but I don't know if it has been taken over by somebody else. I'll look it. I'll look it up for you, Mom. I'll look it up for you. Somebody has beat me to it, but yeah, yes, I love that. Well, clearly, I'm cut from a certain cloth because we're we're both trying to do things to support women, yes. and I guess I know where I got it from. So, you know, you've shared so much about your journey. Is there anything I? I mean, we could go on for hours, but is there anything I'm leaving out that you want the audience to know? 
Yes. You need to work hard to start any venture. Mm-hmm. You need to be consistent. You have to be persistent. And most of all, you have to be committed. Committed, yeah. Right? Because you cannot let go. There's no let go. Yeah. You honestly, and you have shown that to me day in, day out. You know, I've spent the last couple of weeks in London, Ontario. And even now in her 70s, my mom still gets up 5 a.m., goes for a walk, comes home, prepares for her date, you know, has her tea. She's got her rituals, but she's so routine. She's so disciplined. And, you know, for me, I, it's just been the best example. I haven't always been like that, but I'm, I'm now realizing in my, you know, late thirties that this is, this is how you get it done. You know, showing up for yourself every day, no matter what is happening around you, that is the ultimate entrepreneur, no matter what comes her way, any, any, obviously throughout all this, she has also supported our family. She has cooked amazing meals for us still while also running a clinic. You know, she is so incredible. But what I think is her her best trait is she shows up for herself, even if it's a bad day, even if she's sad, even if there's something else going on in her personal life. She's crying over here. So I'm just going to talk, keep talking because I have a couple more questions left. So we'll let her get composed. But mom, you know, you really have been the best example, not just for me and Salima, but even for my dad, he he constantly is impressed by this woman. It's hard not to be. Okay. So obviously it's my mom, so I can go on forever, but we won't. I'd love to ask you, mom, you know, what advice would you want to give to aspiring entrepreneurs, especially young women and mothers? I would say do the hard work, be consistent. Be persistent and be true to yourself and know who you are doing this for. And for me, it's my two beautiful daughters. Yeah. Okay, now I'm going to start crying. Okay, I think that's so important is, you know, you have to have a vision. You have to have purpose in your life. You have to know what the grand picture is. And my mom has always known that. And she everything she's ever done has been you know, for our family, but I think also for herself to, to prove to herself that she's worthy and that she's capable and that she could do this. And, you know, from the moment she picked those books back up, she, she never looked back. Okay. Anything. Oh, actually, okay. This is the last question I'm going to ask you because I asked this of everybody, but what are you listening to these days? Like who are, who are your favorite authors to listen to or podcasts or whatnot? I listen to Deepak Chopra, to Oprah, Tony Robbins, and my daughter's podcast, of course. <laughs> you know, how can I miss that? Yeah, right? I had to, I had to remind her of that. She, <laughs> she's my biggest fan and she does listen. So, okay, mom. Uh, so Oprah, Deepak Chopra, and you said Eckhart Tolle. Eckhart Tolle, Yeah, yes. I know you love, love him. All right. It's been such a pleasure having you on. You did so amazing today. I took some coaxing, but I know your story is going to inspire so many people. Thank you, Clara. Okay. All right. Love you too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Futura Talks. 
I hope it has left you inspired and motivated to pursue your dreams, find your calling, and follow your heart in your life and business. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean so much to me if you would consider leaving a review and better yet, sharing this episode with someone who will be inspired to start building their own Futura. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and I will see you next week.